I'm Jen Jackson. This year for Christmas, I'd like snow, but to ride my bike outside. <laughs> Right, what we just heard was Jen Jackson and a bit of a, a paradoxical or contradictory Christmas wish. Welcome, Dan, to the Canadian Cycling. How's it going, Matt? That's good. It's good. How are you? You know, I missed one of the the rare bonus riding days yesterday. It was like rideable yesterday. I know, like ten degrees in the big smoke here. And what did you do? I ran. Okay. I was already no, I, we're off to a terrible start. I, we're okay. Next, to my defense, there's no defense. It was Santa themed, and I think for the kids. But here's my beef with the you don't have with children. the running. It's not for my kids. It's for the kids. <laughs> okay, for the, yeah, the kids. It's just looking out for the next generation. <laughs> so we're on this bike path or whatever. Oh. People are swerving all over the place. The hold your line concept does not seem to apply there. Do, who are we talking about? Runners or you? The runners. Okay. Yeah. That you're still, you know, I'm still angry with you. Even on the so way back. We're going to talk about cycling now. Yeah. I'm already, we're done with your story. Some kid took me out. I had to yell, hold my line. And then, you know what? I took him out at the finish line. No big deal, though. Okay. Okay, and we're back to the Canadian <laughs> Cycling Magazine so podcast. And we're done sorry about with uh, Dan's forays into jogging. <laughs> this episode, <laughs> which has no more running, and that is... Actually, really cool. We're going to talk with uh, Raphael Lemieux. You know who this is, don't you, Dan? I do. She may be Canada's coolest cyclist. Whoa, 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 whoa. We have so many cool cyclists. But she has been making her, a name for herself on the, the fixie racing scene. Yeah, she's big in the Red Hook crit circles. Well, this year she won the series overall. And Ooh. she won in Brooklyn. So we're going to catch up with her and just how the season went. And we're going to talk a little bit about riding with no brakes and one gear. And then? After that, we go to Spikes on Bikes. Yes. And this is a very interesting project in Vancouver. It's a harm reduction program in the downtown east side. And uh, there are people on bikes, like with naloxone kits and just helping um take some of the pressure or work on the opioid crisis uh, in that part of the city. Yeah, I love the feature in this uh, in this issue of the magazine on this program, and uh, it was great to get some more detail from the guys. That's right. Well, I'll be talking with Tom Babin, who did the feature and, and spoke with the people behind Spikes on Bikes. And then? It's back, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Your favorite segment. Full send, no send. Yes, we've got hot, hot topics to keep you warm in December. Make sure your socks are on tight. Because <laughs> it may knock your socks off. That's right. All right. Let's get into it. This past April, Montreal's Raphael Lemieux won the Red Hook Crit in Brooklyn. This is a race done on a very technical course and with fixed gear bikes. There's no brakes and sometimes there are spectacular mistakes. But Lemieux had a perfect race in April. In October, she was sixth at the Red Hook Series, uh, its only other stop in Milan. Um, and this allowed her to take the series overall. Now, Lemieux is a, is a pretty interesting athlete. She, in the early 2000s, was a speed skater and a road cyclist. Uh, she retired. She gave up those disciplines completely roughly 11 years ago. But in the past few years, she discovered fixed gear bikes and has been racing a lot in Montreal and abroad. And she also works full time. So I spoke with her about racing fixed and working and those crazy Red Hook races. Raphael Lemieux, um, congratulations on your Red Hook Series championship title. Thank you. Um, it, uh, you took this title at uh, the beginning, near the start of October. Um, and what was it like winning the series overall? Oh, it was a, a nice feeling. It was really my goal for um, this year. Uh, I worked pretty hard, and finally I have it. It's cool. And you started the series off well this year, I'd say. Uh, you took the win in Brooklyn. 
How would you compare the uh, the two races, Milan versus Brooklyn? Oh, it's funny. It's a little bit different. Milan is always uh, different, I will say. The crowd is pretty much the same. It's amazing. The course, the course is a little bit less technical, I will say. It's, um, I think, a circle of 1.3 kilometers. But no airplane. It's a big, it's a big, fast course. And it's at the end of the season, and a lot of uh, new Italian girl from uh, Pro Road Tour came to, to Milan to race the fixed gear. It's the end of the season for them, and they want to have fun. And um, I will set the pack, it's a little bit different. And, and how did that change your race and your, your tactics with those, with those riders present? Um, uh, the races came a really lot uh, faster. And it's funny, but the sprint, it's, a little, it's really more important because you cannot, um, you cannot take advantage to the, from the turn or the technical part. It's really uh, faster than you can, the good position, man, and the, the sprint are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in these uh, fixed gear races, uh, sometimes when a rider gets a gap on another ride or yeah. on the pack, these gaps, I think, or I understand, are say more significant or more important than gaps in a traditional road race um is that oh, is yeah. that correct uh, yes a little bit i would say sometimes uh, they are and some race they are harder to uh, to to get and um it's, it's dependent like uh, in mila i would say we have a nice the um spanish girl attack with uh, three laps to go and she make a nice attack and she have a gap of five seconds maybe but five seconds and fixed gear it's it's pretty big and it was funny because no italian girl want to uh, to to follow no italian girl want to to work and for me it was i'm going it's everything or nothing and i take the decision to chase but uh, i pray i pray a little bit because at the last corner uh, the Italian passed me. I cannot have the legs to keep my position, but um, still happy. Nice. And so, was it in that last corner that the the um, the final standing was was decided? That uh, you came in sixth place? Uh, was that decided right at the the finale there? Uh, yes, exactly. But it's funny because it was not at the last corner. It was uh, the corner. At, I think the race at uh, eighth corner, mm-hmm. but the last four corner are really 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 tight then it's funny but you cannot really pass if you are maybe the first or second i don't think the third can pass then it's funny but the last four corner is really decisive then you need to be in the first or second position for the last corner if you are fourth, forget it you cannot sprint to go to the first one <laughs> it sounds very strategic it, yeah, exactly. Then you need to know where is the good place to pass because uh, the opportunity or you doesn't have an, uh, a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So what were some of uh, your other highlights from this past uh, season of racing? Uh, I would say the is the national crit and Chikutimi. That was, it was a big, not a big moment, but it was, a, I think it was important for me. Yeah, I just did the crit. It was in Chikutimi, mm-hmm. and it had a really big hill. <laughs> and the girl are really, really, was really, really strong. We start, I don't know, with the 60 girl, and finally we finished at 10, and it was really aggressive race. And I think the it's wake up me and give me confidence in myself because I was in the top 10, and I just realized that, yes, I can raise some crit, I can go uphill too, and um, I was like, okay, it's good. I'm part of the the national elite cyclist, and it can tell me too that I'm not just good at my local race at the Remandi Lachine. I can do real race, and that gave me a lot of confidence for the rest of the season. That's yeah, that was uh, important, I think. That's interesting that you, you say that because you've writ- written at um – well, at a, a, a top level at the Red Hook series, but also, uh, I guess, roughly 10 years ago, you were racing road at, you know, the uh, elite level, uh, I believe it was on Team Rona. And, uh, yeah, exactly. So um, I just find it interesting that 
just this year you you're taking confidence again sort of returning to the road <laughs> yeah it's true but we we don't need to forget then i'm come uh yeah i have uh, 18 when i rode for hona mm -hmm. and now i'm 35 <laughs> i take a big uh, 10 year off, maybe 12 year off, then I did nothing, no competition at all. Then it's cool after, I would say, 10, 12 year, really, really off of competition. And now it's since it was my third year, then I came back, then I, I'm, I'm still on that level. I'm pretty, it's pretty good too. And 35, I can compete with the young, uh, really fast uh, cyclists. It's cool, I find. Definitely, definitely cool. And it it's your third year, I think you said competing, but this is also the, I believe, the third year that you won um, Mardi Cycliste de la Chine overall. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. That, that was where I will set my first goal when I came back to cyclists to do, oh, they have a really nice race every Thursday at uh, La Chine, really close to Montreal in my city, and said, why not to be in shape for that race? That was the first. Uh, the first step, I would say, to my cyclist. Excellent. That that is a that's a race that has definitely um, been a springboard for for many Canadian cyclists. Exactly. Yeah. So, what's the 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 Mardi Cycliste de la Chine is a is a, a geared race, but what's the the fixie gear scene like in Montreal? Oh, it's uh, growing up a lot. I would say. Uh, they have more and more competition for the cyclists, the the fifth gear race, and it's pretty cool. This year, for the first year, uh, the Federation of Quebec mm -hmm. um, joined us. They had the fifth gear community, and now the competition are with the Federation. And like I said, the community getting bigger. Uh, still have the same spirit i would say the fun the fun is still the first objective to have fun and push yourself and we have a really great community is that is that the your what you like most about the uh, fixed gear racing is the the fun <laughs> the element of fun oh uh, yes i think i think it's the most important thing and road or uh, fixed gear i think the sport we're doing that because we like that because it's fun the first it's for myself, it's the first important thing. If I doesn't have fun during the race, I will not do it. Um, but yes, I think fixed gear, they are there to have fun. They are there. The beer is really, really important, I'm sure. <laughs> and I would say that everyone is there to to enjoy, uh, to be a little bit crazy. But, uh, oops, sorry, I have a dog. <laughs> but to, <laughs> the dog to, agrees, to, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm working I'm for I'm a worker. I, I work 40 hours a week, and I don't have time to train so much. And I think with the the crit, it's it's like perfect. I think I can train one hour and a half, two hours, and it's enough. It's and it's a fun training too. And I think it's what uh, I would said. I really train to be a crit racer, and I think a lot of people are like me. Then they can do, they can fit the training to be a crit racer. Uh, and the and the week I would say. Mm -hmm. So it's it's easier to balance with your your full time job. Exactly, yeah. And it, I think it's a uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of that too for the other cyclists. And they don't need to train for six hours every day. They can train. Um, they can train. They train hard, but really shortly. Mm -hmm. Now you're you work during the day as a as an optician. Yep. And do your coworkers know about your crit racing and your fixed gear racing <laughs> some yes some no <laughs> it's a little bit funny when i came to work i'm all a cyclist and bring my bike inside and and then after that i changed i put my uh, my vest i don't know what is my my fancy clothes it's it's a little bit of two different words mm -hmm. uh, some know some doesn't know <laughs> and uh do they know you ride around with no brakes 
Uh, when I say that, they all tell me that I'm a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it's definitely uh, more adventurous than some riders are willing to do, for sure. Exactly. But at the same time, I said it's pretty... I was a short track speed skater, huh? Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit the same thing. And short track, you doesn't have brakes, and you're really close to the other people in the corner. You need to lead. I find it pretty similar, and I like to race too. It's fun to to challenge yourself around people. Are there any skills that you gained from being a, a short track speed skater? Uh, you're you're pretty. You raced at a very high level at, in that discipline. But are there um, are there any skills that maybe come over from from the ice onto the onto the road? Um, I will say a lot. Uh, yes, the technical, the leaning, to don't be afraid to take the corner really fast and to lean in the corner. But I will say the powerful too. Then, then I know to train to be powerful. I will say. Um, it was funny because I, I quit a little bit speed skater because I didn't enough enough. Uh, I was not enough good for the sprint for the start. And it's super funny because now in cyclists, I'm, I'm a sprinter. <laughs> mm. It's two different words, yeah. But it shows how it's two different words, but then same time, I was training really to be powerful. And now it was my endless, um, I don't know, faiblesse uh, in English, I don't know. Uh, it was, was witness. Yeah. And now when, when I'm training, I'm always thinking to that, then let's go do powerful, powerful. And when I'm, I think I'm used to doing squat and a lot of weight. And when I'm go cyclist, I don't go just for the six hours. Like I said, I have a lot of short, short, short interval. And I think I take my background of training, some training from speed skating. And I know I was a cyclist, and I know what it is too to have a to to have training for cyclists. And I think I mix the two together, and I think it's a it's a good mix. I think so. It seems Product. to be, yeah. be paying dividends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> does does fixed gear uh, racing or just fixed gear bikes do do they have a uh, a role in uh, developing new riders? I think so too. Then I think they bring fixed gear. Yes, it's about the sport. It's the community. It's about art too. I think it's interesting. We see at Milan and the bike are just crazy. It's super, super artistic. And I think they bring the street people to say, oh, a bike, it's cool. And what is fun too, then a fixed gear bike is not really expensive. It's I think with 1000, you have a really nice bike and you can compete with that. And you can be not proud of your bike, but I like your bike, and the mechanic is really simple, um, don't cost a lot, and I think it's, I, I find it's really a good first step, and uh, I hear a lot of people who never do bike and said, oh, fixed gear looks so cool, I buy a bike, and now I'm here to try to do some race. I think it's really a nice first step, yes. Interesting, interesting. What are your plans for uh, the off-season? Oh, uh, take off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no sure. thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really enjoy my uh, my months off. Uh, I think during the season we doesn't have a lot of time to go out to to enjoy your your family. I would say to take supper, to have good time with your friend. That would be the important thing during my um, uh, months off. And it's fall. Huh? It's super nice for mountain bike and BMX. <laughs> I think I will do a little bit more on mountain bike, BMX, to chill a little bit with my dog and to take a uh, relax, I would say, and fun. That sounds like an excellent postseason. Uh, still a bit active, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, enjoying it. Exactly, yeah. And have you thought about uh, next year and any plans there? Oh, I need to take a month off <laughs> before right. I think for the next year. But I think I have a really nice uh, balance right now with uh, my work, my training, to have fun and to enjoy the, the to be in the race. And I think I will plan to do pretty much exactly the same thing than this year. Then I still I really have fun on my bike, like I said, and uh, training in natural. Then yes, I think I will. Hope then uh, Redok uh, Redok will have four race next year. We'll see. It's uh, really it's uh, emergent sport, extreme mm-hmm. sport. It's 
still pretty new, then we never know if we'll still have some or no. I know it's pretty popular in Europe. They have a lot of competition, but in in Canada and US, it's still pretty small. Yes, it's getting better in Quebec, but it's still a small community. Um, I think we need to see a little bit, a little bit what will happen. I hope then uh, Specialized Rocket Expresso will still be there next year. Um, yeah, we'll see a little bit, but I think I find a nice balance, and I hope I will do exactly the same next year. Excellent. Well, I hope so too. It'll be fun to uh, to keep track of your progress uh, again next year. Um, cool. Raphael Lemieux, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. My pleasure. Raphael Lemieux from Montreal races for Specialized Rocket Espresso in fixed gear races. This year, she won the Red Hook Crit Series overall. All right, you ready? One, two, three, six minutes, go. Okay, for full send, no send. The timer is going. Enforcing fenders on your group ride, Matthew. I'm all for fenders. I do not like the Belgian toothpaste in my teeth. No grit in the gums? No, I could go without it. And, you know, it's it's really just an etiquette thing. And if it's a sloppy winter ride, you should have something to keep that muck down. So is that a full send or is it a no send? Full send. You know what? No send. If you don't like it, go ride on the front. You're not going to get any grit in your teeth. Wow. HTFU and get all gritty, says you. Exactly. Plus, you got that sweet bike. It looks bad. All right. Okay, next. Moving on. The UCI, in their ever-growing wisdom, says... The socks for next year mm-hmm. must not exceed the middle area between the fibula head and the lateral malleolus. I don't know what you're saying, but my understanding of this rule is between the ankle and the knee. That's where the top Somebody of the sock... Somebody attention in science class. No, I looked at the pictures that the UCI helpfully provided. Um, what's the problem with this? I think it's sock fascism. Oh my god. It's just equipment. Like everything else is regulated from like this saddle angle. It's like this is equipment, dude. Can if we you want something better than like the the iPad motor tester, and then we have to spend our energy on this has absolutely zero impact in your life. It's... You think it does, but just wait till there's a commissaire in your M3 race who comes and measures your socks, <laughs> and then you'll be cursing the UCI. It might start in Switzerland, but it's gonna come to Bowmanville. It's gonna to St. Catherine's. No send. <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's... I, I, I was Now I've been alerted to the dangers. Okay, full, like, get rid of it. Yes. All right. Opened up my inbox this morning. Yes. Get a lot of re- emails from Rafa. I'm, just, I'm sure everybody does. You know what they started off with? What? The Festive 500. Well, don't you like festive things? <sighs> you Are know, you bah humbugging already? I'm bah humbugging. It's one thing for them in England to say, oh, tough it out, ride in the winter. You're so it might, provincial. It might be four <laughs> degrees. There might be some rain. You know what? Try and do a fest of 500 in Saskatoon, in Regina, in Brandon. Then I'll be impressed. So you're feeling geographically hindered and left out yeah. on behalf they of your are, fellow Canadians. Yeah, they are... It's not inclusive, and I'm not going to stand for oh, it. Oh, my yeah. gosh. They need to have a an indoor virtual fest of 500 oh, for us. Oh, boy. Here we go yeah. again. We're going to get all virtual on this. I can. Is there like a, is there like an equivalent of pleading the fifth on this? It's like, I just so don't care. You want to get all Festive 500? Get Festive 500. If you no, don't. I'm just saying they, they're they not allowing us to get Festive 500 with they're their... They're not thinking about that you need snowshoes or fat bikes? Like, or, get a fat bike. Get a fat bike. This should be like a conversion for the fat bike, like pounds to dollars. You know, you're out there with your family getting some fat bike on. You know, that's got to be at least a two to one conversion rate. No okay. sand, Rafa. Okay. Thank you. This is exact math. This yeah. is new math. <laughs> it's new money. It's metric. All right. Palacio, the New England-based clothing brand, mm-hmm. has come out with a indoor range. Right. Full send, no send. So let me just unpack this. For your indoor rides, mm-hmm. they have equipment for you, like indoor shorts. The men's ultralight indoor short. What makes them indoor? Uh, excellent question. I guess it's light. It's and light. So like a summer short. It's like a summer short, but not. But, but and you'll you, never see the sun in it. But you could. Oh, so you can save money maybe because it doesn't need any UV protection or whatever. Possibly. Okay. 
This is absurd. It's absurd because it's it's bib bib short. No, they're just shorts. Just shorts, not bibs. For riding inside. Yes. So the old pair that you don't like to wear outside anymore. Not good enough. Is not good enough no. for riding your trainer inside. What about what about my old T-shirt that I put on? Oh uh, no, they have the men's or women's radiator indoor tank. Indoor tank. That sounds a bit try. I mean, don't you're shrugging your I'm shoulders. Shrugging, I'm shrugging my shoulders, shrugging on, shoulders the on the podcast. I hope that <laughs> this my is very Sean Kelly. My disdain was audible enough <laughs> to was, come to come through. That dead air spoke volumes, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, okay, we're getting a time check of one minute. Um, What's your verdict? My verdict is no send. Come on, I'm in my basement sweating. I can wear whatever I want. I can wear what I want. That's right. <laughs> and my socks, UCI, can be as long as they want. Take the oh, is that Zwift doping if I wear high socks? Oh, like I said, it starts in Switzerland but it comes to your basement. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know anymore. Um, uh, we have one more. Um, very recently, uh, Paul Sherwin passed away. He's been the voice of the the tour de france and uh, for for a generation um you want to give him one big full send yeah it's the final full send for for mr Sherman for paul and phil as a duo i think everyone who grew up watching cycling in north america knew them for me my everlasting memory will be him calling the look when lance looks back at yawn and then just pedals away on to win one of his seven grand tours maybe seven maybe seven Depending on how uh, anyway. ASOFL feels. But um, Paul, here's one full send for you. Big full send for Paul Sherwin. And that's time. I think we're getting better at this. Kept it tight. Vancouver's downtown east side is an area that's been associated with poverty and drug addiction for many years. Roughly two years ago, North America's opioid crisis hit the downtown east side hard. In response to the crisis, to the overdoses and the growing number of needles in parks, the PHS Community Services Society created Spikes on Bikes. This past summer, writer Tom Babin went to Vancouver to learn more about how Spikes on Bikes is helping those in need in the downtown east side. Tom Babin, welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Matthew. In the current edition of Canadian Cycling Magazine, you have a feature story about Spikes on Bikes uh, in Vancouver. Tell us about the Spikes on Bikes program. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting program. Um, so it works on the downtown east side, and it got started a couple of years ago, really when the opioid crisis really hit the streets. And it was a, the motivation behind it was a practical one, you know, the... Uh, PHS, the organization behind it, was doing a lot of work on the streets. They have, uh, uh, they do a lot of work um, uh, to ensure uh, safety among drug users. They've got a little dispensary window where they hand out clean needles and that kind of thing. But as the crisis unfolded, they were getting more and more calls, and they're finding it harder and harder, to, harder to keep up on things. So, really, they just needed an easy way to get around the streets uh, more quickly and more efficiently. You know, to respond to things like uh, 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 dirty needle sites and uh, quick responses to, to people in need. And, um, you know, the city was in the middle of a, a boom on bikes, and a lot of the people who were working there were using their bikes to get around all of the time. So they thought, well, hey, let's try uh, using a bicycle uh, to, get to get our people out there more efficiently. So they got a few old uh, bikes, fixed them up, put some baskets on them, and loaded them up with... Um, you know, uh, health reduction paraphernalia, I guess you could say, clean needles and, and literature and uh, that kind of thing. And they sent their people out on the bikes and they quickly found that um, not only was it uh, a really good uh, way of getting people around, but the bike itself um, helped uh, in, in their mission in some interesting ways. So it really was a practical thing that led to this, this program in the first place. I want to get to those, uh, the ways that the bike helped in other ways, but first, um, just uh, to give us a picture of the timeline, this was in late uh, 2016 that the program launched, I think? Yeah, that's right. It was just, you know, the sort of what they like to call, the, well, not like to call, but what, what, what is being called the opioid crisis. And everyone I talk to says, yes, it's a crisis, kind of kicked off right around that time. And the numbers are crazy. Like the number of OD calls in the downtown east side went from something like 49 a month up to more than 250 a month 
just within a matter mm -hmm. of weeks. Like it really was, it really hit really hard, really quickly. And so, um, you know, the, the spikes on bikes started in response to that. Now, you connected with this organization earlier this year to, to write the story for the magazine. That's where it kind of started. How easy was it to make that connection, or how difficult was it to make that connection with the Spikes on Bikes organization? Yeah, well, we heard about the program, and it just seemed like uh, an interesting thing to learn more about. But um, it was t it was tough to get things going. I mean, uh, you know, this or this is PHS is an organization that's really close to the street. You know, they're literally down there, you know, uh, on West Hastings, uh, helping people people out every day. They do a lot of work with uh, what they call peers, which means you know people who are not far from the street themselves. Some of them are homeless. Some of them are working on, uh, um, you know, have drug issues themselves. And so getting through was a bit tricky. Um, but when they, when they heard from us, they were, they were keen. They, know, they want to spread the word about this program because they want support and they know it's successful and, you know, it's a good story for them to be telling and a good story for the wider community to hear too because there is really good harm reduction work going on down there. Um, but they're a bit reluctant to have me on board as a reporter, uh, you know, uh, watching along. And, and at first I thought it was, you know, they're worried about privacy, about their, their clients and that kind of thing, which is totally understandable. But, you know, as I pushed them a bit more to take part, they're worried more about me, uh, <laughs> um, you know, witnessing what they see every day. They're, you know, it can be a very traumatic experience for people who are not used to that kind of thing. And they thought uh, sending a reporter out there, um, you know, might be a traumatic experience for for me, and you know, I ended up spending some time down there too, and I totally understand what they what they meant by that, um, and it, it really was amazing to me. I mean, I was there during the day, and things were pretty calm, and they were uh, kept me pretty sheltered, but um, it really gave me a new appreciation for what um, is going on down there every day and what people are dealing with, and um, it's pretty shocking if you don't see it. I know lots of people who visited Vancouver understand that area, or, or at least they know what it looks like, but to get down there was really eye-opening for me in, in a lot of ways. Like the seriousness of it really struck me, but also other things too, like the like the sense of community that's down there and the warmth of the people and the passion of the people who are helping out their neighbors. It was really, uh, really an interesting eye-opening experience for me as a reporter on this. Now, you, one of your original ideas was to go on, on a ride-along with some of the peers, and they they shot that down um, uh, almost right away, I believe. What was what was their concern? I, I, and didn't they say something like they they were worried you'd have or get PTSD? Well, yeah, like I, they were worried about my about me um, experiencing this traumatic event, and I think maybe they've had this experience before, where it can be very disturbing um, for some people um, to see these kinds of things. So they were they're a bit worried about me, which was. You know, very thoughtful of them. I was I was grateful for that. So I took them at their word, and um, you know, I didn't end up doing a ride along with them uh, during the night. But I got down there, and they showed me the program, and I met some of the peers they work with too. But you know, it really was just um, it shows you how how um, how important the work is, I guess, and like how difficult the conditions are down there. Like there's some heartbreaking things happening every day, and um, you know, it's a, it's it's a real crisis, and it often gets neglected. I think it gets swept under the rug a bit. I think we've learned to, you know, sort of tune out uh, uh, of what's really going on in these situations. So, you know, um, I should say too, another, there's, there's a concern. I think this is a concern from a lot of people who are working down in that area is that the whole community gets sort of painted with the same brush. Um, you know, it's the downtown east side is sort of seen as the place in Canada where uh, drug problems are, are so prevalent, and I don't think that's accurate. I mean, the area has struggles, obviously, but to think that the opioid crisis is only with uh, people living there is just not accurate. We know it's happening in the suburbs and in the downtown office towers, and it's affecting everybody, too. So, you know, that, that neighborhood gets a lot of bad press, and there's a lot of problems down there, absolutely, but there's a lot of good work and a real sense of community that belongs there as well. So it's a little difficult for organizations to you know, um, get the media down there and sort of uh, tell the story in a way that, you know, they feel it should be fairly told. So you went to the, the downtown east side and you went to the PHS Community Services Society office. Now, this is the organization that uh, Spikes on Bikes grew out of. Uh, can you describe what the offices are like and, and where they are, actually? Yeah, well, it's right off, it's in, a, it's in an alleyway right off uh, um, Hastings Street uh, on the downtown east side. Um, you know, you turn down the alley and 
you know, it's if anyone who's seen pictures from that area probably knows the image. It's, you know, the alley is full of people, and there's lots of um, there's people sleeping on the street. And you know, when I was walking down there, we passed you know um, a couple of women who were laying out a blanket on the sidewalk filled with um, goods that you know may or may not have come from a convenience store nearby. They're selling them, trying to make money. You know, things like. Uh, unrefrigerated packets of chicken were on the street. You know, it's just people trying to make a, trying to make a living, or not even make a living, just trying to get a little bit of money so they can get through the day, really. So, you know, that's what you see on Hastings Street. And you turn left and you go down uh, this back alley, and there's just a little dispensary window um, on one of the buildings. And, you know, we went inside, and it's a tight little office, but it's crammed floor to ceiling with, um, you know, medical supplies and clean needles, and there's people coming and going. And it's uh, the people who work there are really interesting, a really... A real mix of, you know, social workers and healthcare advocates, and um, you know, people who are there uh, trying to get the programs to run, and mixed in with with peers. So it's other people who are from the street who are have the real connections to the people in their in the neighborhood, who are there helping out. And you know, everyone it kind of runs like this little beehive of activity. When I was there, um, you know, people were coming and going, and everyone was uh, on a first name basis, and um, like a real interesting mix of people. But they all, everyone I spoke to, like had had almost the same vocabulary for describing their work down there and the community and what they need and what they um, what the problems they're facing are and that sort of thing. So it was, um, you know, uh, pretty interesting to see. Can you tell me more about that uh, common vocabulary? Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know. Uh, everyone I met uh, is, is, it was really passionate about helping people, but also getting over the stigma of the neighborhood. Um, and I, you know, when you get down to it, they speak very passionately about um, in, you know that the neighborhood is full of people who are who are hurting. And you know, I think we we've we've gotten away from this a bit in Canada, but there still is a stigma attached to to drug use, uh, especially down there. It's often looked at as a law enforcement problem. But the people at PHS really see it as a health problem. You know, what they see, I think, is a lot of people who are in need of help. It's people who um, have all kinds of diverse backgrounds, come from all over the place, but all are in need of uh, not just medical help, but uh, some support to get back on their feet. Um, and what I found really interesting was um, a lot of the work that they spoke about was uh, in terms of things like self-worth and self-confidence. And, uh, and the stigma around that, they felt, in some ways, I think, really perpetuates the problem where um, you know if you if you're if you're in that lifestyle and you're trying to get out of it to be viewed at by the larger society as you know one of those people who are in the downtown east side I think really damages somebody I think that if you internalize it it really hurts your self-worth which helps you which makes it really difficult to, to get out of the situation you're into I think there's a lot of people who really want to really want to get healthy and get better and there's lots of people there to help but you know getting over getting over that stigma that's attached to them is really a huge hurdle in a lot of cases too. So I think, you know, that's why they're very careful about the words they choose and, and the message that gets out and they're, um, you know, sensitive around um, nosy reporters like me um, um, because, you know, overcoming that stigma is a real challenge but also something where they see a lot of potential for growth in the future. One of the, I think one of the phrases that came out of, of your story uh, and your visit was a radical acceptance. Oh, why is that term important? Yeah, this was really interesting to me. Um, so when I was asking um, some of the workers there, you know, about the programming, they talk a lot about uh, working with peers. So Spikes on Bikes is one of the programs that is almost completely run by peers. So, you know, they've got shifts going out all night long, uh, groups of two people on bikes going out, really just looking through the neighborhood for people to help. Um, you know, they're looking for people who are uh, passed out in the street. Um, if they're ODing, they know how to give naloxone and call 911. Um, so that happens a lot. Um, and there's, you know, ODs almost every shift that they deal with, which was <laughs> shocking to me as well. But they're also talking to people, um, giving advice on where to get um, free meals or where they can get some housing or um, offering support and services, just really out there trying to help in as many ways as they can. But when you're dealing with when a program like that run by peers, um, it can be difficult, I think. I mean, we're talking about people who um, are uh, not far from the street themselves, some of them still living on the street, uh, some of them are still dealing with um, uh, drug problems on themselves. I met one guy uh, named Randy Pandora, who is uh, a really interesting guy. He's lived down there for, you know, uh, 15 years. 
He called himself an occasional drug user himself, really articulate, uh, really smart guy. Um, and he was down there um, working with them all the day. But the term radical acceptance came up when I was asking about the logistics of doing this. I mean, how do you plan um, a trip or how do you plan a shift for people when um, you know, maybe you've got some people who aren't going to show up every day or, um, or you know, maybe take a few days because they're having a drug, a drug binge themselves or they uh, get caught up in something themselves. And um, what all the workers there told me was like, they know that's that's just the life they live in. And when they, when they talk about radical acceptance, what they mean is they're there, if they really want to help these people, they need to be accepting of everything. And um, that meant, you know, if someone doesn't show up for, for work one day, you need to be accepting and understanding of that. Um, if they disappear for weeks at a time and then come back, you accept them back into it because you need to give them a chance. And I think that's really tough for some people to get used to. Um, I think that's tough for some of the people who work there. They told me that it took them a long time to get used to this idea. But there's some, so much benefit from using peers, not just for the people they help, but for the peers themselves, um, that they, they found that this is the method that works best. And I found it really interesting that the program seemed to help the people, the peers working it as much as the people they were out there helping. You know, you know the program gave a lot of the peers um, uh, you know, a purpose. It gave them a, a sense of uh, helping, a sense of community. Um, they really felt passionate about it, and they had all these great, inspiring stories about people who, you know, started in, as a peer in the program, and over time, you know, maybe they it, it's, they almost washed out a couple of times. They came back. They had problems. You know, you know, drug addiction is um, uh, a difficult thing, and people relapse. That's just the way it works. So that's just what happens. But by by having this attitude of radical acceptance, it really gave people a chance to come back and mess up and try again and try again and try again. And they have these great, inspiring stories of people who came through the program, made it through. Um, you know, we're living in, a, in a, an apartment in Vancouver now, and had started their own programs, and we're doing great work. So, you know, it was really cool to see and to think about. You know, uh, as almost like as an employer, uh, being able to accept um, the people you're working with, no matter what happens, was really an interesting concept for me. I find that interesting because it it almost sounds like there's an upward spiral instead of a downward spiral. There's these these peers who are are out there doing like really like on the ground practical life saving work they have their naloxone kits and and they're they're often saving people from overdoses, but yet the peers themselves are getting um i don't know if this is too loaded a term but a bit of rehab themselves and they're they're helping they're they're being helped as well as you as you pointed out yeah, and I think that's you know, that's kind of came the focus of my story, and which was a surprise to me. I thought I would go in there writing about, um, you know, the people that are being helped. But what struck me was how much the program is helping everyone who's involved in it. And, you know, someone like Randy Pandora, who I spoke with, was, uh, you know, I found him really inspiring. You know, as we walked down the street together, he was saying hello to people he knows. You know, that was really his community. He told this really you know, heartbreaking sort of story in, in some ways about how he was one of the first shifts he was out on Spikes on Bikes. He came across a, um, you know, a, a couple of dumpsters and between them he saw a pair of legs sticking out. And so he pedaled over there worried, worried that somebody was overdosing and sort of got up to him and realized, yes, this person was overdosing. And then when he took a closer look, it was a friend of his. It was someone he had known for years and years. So, you know, um, that must be a horrifying thought for somebody you know, if you see your friend in, in, in a state and, you know, uh, really close to death, I would think. And, um, you know, what he said was, you know, he did his job. He, he administered the naloxone and the heartwarming part came afterwards when, you know, the guy he was helping sort of sat straight up and gave him a big smile and said, thank you. Like he had such gratitude for Randy for helping him out in this situation, too, that I think that's kind of lost as well. I think there really is. You know um, that sense of community and and the gratitude that comes with that sort of thing with the people who are helping out as well. So, I think that sort of anecdote really spelled out the the need and the risks and sort of the gratitude. You know the, the 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 sense of gratitude that comes along with the Spikes on Bikes program. So, uh, you've discussed how the the program helps people, the both the 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 peers and and the people that the peers are helping. But um, what other advantages do bikes have? In this in this scenario uh, in the downtown east side, uh, maybe from uh, a, logis- a logistical or practical purpose, why are they better than cars or, or even walking? 
Uh, bikes are great. Um, you know, on one level, they're uh, great in cities for all the same reasons that you know I like riding them too. Is you know, in a, in a dense uh, urban city like Vancouver, uh, getting a short distance is much faster on a bike than it is in a car. Um, you know, but Vancouver is slowly turning into a bike city itself. I mean, they've done a great job with their bike infrastructure, and it's really been embraced by the people. So your their bikes are everywhere anyway. Um, and so, you know, on a practical basis, it's just easier to take your bike from place to place, especially if you're going down back alleys and that kind of thing uh, around the neighborhood than it is to sort of drive a van and park it and then unload the van with all your gear and that kind of stuff. So I think that's really cool. And that's, you know, the same reason bikes are doing so well in cities all over the world. They're just a practical urban, you know, transportation mode. Um, but what was interesting, I think that surprised even the people involved in the Spikes on Bikes program was that the 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 bike itself seemed to become a message in a, in a weird way you know they you know randy told me when he's out on his bike people just come up and ask him about it you know they just it's almost like a common um a common interest for a lot of people a bike is much more approachable i think than what you like an institutional vehicle if it, you know whether it be a police car or an ambulance or even like a logoed you know panel van that, that comes with some baggage i think especially for people who live down there um, but the bike doesn't have any of that stuff. It's just an easy thing. He, you know, Randy said it's a it's a conversation starter. Um, it, it's easy. It's um, uh, almost nobody has a negative impression of bikes. You know, uh, in their in a practical way in their lives. You know, it's got a sense of whimsy and and um, people think of their childhood about it and they think of the fun that comes on a bike. So all of these things um, came with the bike that they didn't even expect it to happen. So I think now. What's happened is people see a bike rolling up and the, with, you know, the, the peers wearing their vest and they know that this is something that's helpful and friendly. And the bike just sort of carries that message of friendliness and helpfulness along with it, too. And, you know, I just don't think you can get that with some other modes of transportation. So it was a nice surprise for them, too. And I think, uh, um, you know, it gets people on, you know, people thinking about bikes in a new way. It can't be a bad thing either. And what are the bikes like? What kind of bikes are they riding? Oh, I think whatever they can get their hands on, really. They're mostly, you know, 10-year-old uh, mountain bikes that they've done a basic tune-up to, put a basket on the front. Uh, you know, sometimes there is a rack at the back, just a practical thing. You know, we're not talking about a program with a lot of money here, so they're, tr they're doing what they can with what they've got. So, you know, getting bikes fixed up is another program that uh, is cool. We see this in lots of cities, like with... Uh, you know, earn a bike programs and community bike shops where you get people in there fixing machines up and getting them rolling again. That could be a nice community thing as well. So they're just using whatever they can get their hands on and whatever will work and what's and whatever's reliable for them too. So, you know, I saw a lot of mountain bikes that looks like the kind I rode about 10 years ago. So <laughs> whatever they can get their hands on, I think is what works. Yeah, the bike is, it, there's such durable machines that, you know, they can take a beating and then with a bit of fixing up, they can be put back into service. Yeah, and not have to worry about, you know, taking it to the shop or getting oil changes and that kind of thing. Most people, you know, can fix little minor things themselves. So it's just in, it just makes a lot of sense in that context. Now, are there, uh, does this program uh, face any challenges, I would say, beyond the, the harm reduction work uh, Spikes on Bikes does out on the street? Um, is it, yeah, does it face any other sort of challenges um, from day to day or, or to be able to, to bring its services out there? Well, I think funding for any program like this is always a problem. I think they would love to have more money. They would give them some more certainty. They could roll more uh, people out on bikes. Um, you know, they pay the peers who are involved in the program, but, you know, um, I think they would always love to pay them more. Um, getting, getting enough money to pay them a living wage for doing this important work, I think, would be one of their goals. They would love to do that. Um, I don't think um, anyone feels good about... Um, that I think everyone would like them to see them being paid more. So I think, if if anything, it's funding's a problem, and you know there are bigger philosophical um, problems not just around this program but about harm reduction and uh, policing and all that sort of thing. These are bigger societal questions about how we treat um, and drug uh, drug use and drug addiction, you know, in in our society. So you know I think there's a lot of I don't want to say frustration, but there's a lot of um, concern about. The, like we've talked about earlier, like the stigma attached to this kind of thing. And um, I think all the people who are working down there, they would love to see like a change in attitudes to, toward not just the downtown east side, but uh, drug use and opioid use in general. I think that would, you know, uh, I think that would ease their minds a lot. And I think it would help them get to where they'd like to go when it comes to their harm reduction strategies. 
Now, after after spending time um, uh, in the downtown east side and, and writing and thinking deeply about spikes on bikes, what do you think is, is next for the program or where do you think it's going um, from here? I think it's, you know, I think they, they hope to expand it. I think um, being a little more mobile is good. I think they would love for other cities to look at that model. And, and they've had such success with it that I think, um, you know, they could deal with it in, in other big cities in Canada that have similar problems too. You know, I don't think they have um, huge plans for, you know, we're not talking about a big branded, you know, uh, corporate initiative here. This is like a community-based program. But I think whenever something works, um, we want it to spread um, through all of those communities. And, you know, this is an easy one. It's easy to get off the ground. It has great benefits for the people working and for the people they're serving. So I think, you know, if someone in another city was to pick this up, I think they'd feel really happy about that. Tom Babin, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Tom Babin is a contributor to Canadian Cycling Magazine. He's the author of Frostbike, The Joy, Pain, and Numbness of Winter Cycling. He lives in Calgary, where he blogs about bikes at shifter.info. And that's the episode. Uh, It was put together by Dan Walker, Philippe Tremblay, me, Matthew Piaro, and it was produced by Adam Killick. And if you want more from Canadian Cycling Magazine, follow us on Instagram at Canadian Cycling. That's at Twitter, at Canadian Cycling on Twitter. For Facebook, it's at Canadian... Oh, no. On Facebook, it's at Cycling Mag. Mm-hmm. Just to keep it, keep you on your toes. Keep things funky. If you want to listen to us, it's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Intune where you can find us. Mm-hmm. I know what you should do there. You should download, you should tell a friend, rate and review, but... Um, um, but, but 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 please give us five stars. That helps us a lot. And only write something nice. <laughs> and if you want to write in for a full send, no send, we always appreciate user submissions. So it's podcast at cyclingmagazine.ca. Yeah, yeah. Send us your topics and we'll, we'll maybe debate them and just fully send them or just no send at all. We'll see. Um, for all kinds of cycling news and reviews, go to cyclingmagazine.ca. And as always, we thank the Ontario Media Development Corporation for its support. See you next time.